it's a pleasure to have you here. For those that don't know you, can you please give us a short intro? Yeah, uh, I am Harrison, aka Pop Punk on Chain on Twitter. Um, I'm the co-founder of Gaslight, which is the first gas optimization auditing company. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm basically like the gas guy on Twitter. If you've ever seen, you know, the words "gas bad," that was essentially created by me and by Gaslight. And yeah, we're just, you know, a company that really hates gas, and we want to make gas prices lower. Beautiful, yeah. I like the gas bad. I think you should trademark it for sure. I don't know if that's possible, yeah. but I think we might be doing something like that. I don't know. I mean, I know we have like our LLC. I think we have trademarks for the word gas light, and I think we should probably, if we haven't already, I'll tell my co-founder to trademark gas bad. Yeah, that would be such a cool move. Gas bad TM. Yeah. And speaking of Twitter, you're kind of like the the king of shit posting. It's pretty much major yes. business. I mean, all the, besides the actual skill of you know uh, the gas audits, and I think it's, you have a beautiful balance of doing shit posts and then suddenly doing like a serious post about some some shit. And it's one of the things that like keeps me entertained because I look at like, something you post. I was like, oh, which one is it? This is it this time? Like, is uh, just like a shippos or something that's actually like I should pay attention to. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting. Like, I really found like a happy medium between that because like, essentially, I've really only been on Twitter for maybe eight to nine months. Um, and I really started out by just tweeting like really informative stuff about like gas, gas optimization. Um, and then I just like randomly was like, what if I could like, be funny on Twitter? What if I didn't have to like put so much time into this app to like, find a smart contract, write a review on it, or write some like demo contracts and stuff. I'm like, what if I could like still grow organically on Twitter, but have fun doing it? And that's where like shit posts come in. Basically like none of my shit posts are really planned besides like the videos and like that random stuff, but it'll be like, I see something hot at the time. I craft a tweet and we just see what happens. And the funny thing is 90% of the shit posts get deleted within like a minute and nobody ever sees them. Um, so you guys really only get to see the ones that do well. Oh, so like you have a little algorithm going. You're like, oh, let's see how this fares in like the first 10 minutes. And if it doesn't blow up, you just like, cancel it. Pretty much, yeah. It's like embarrassing to say, but like I've learned so much about like Twitter and the algorithm. Um, more than NFT God, that guy's a moron. Don't listen to anything he says. Um, but like it's there's like really like simple things that like could really, really help you grow on Twitter or could like actually hurt you. The hurtful stuff is don't use any slurs and like it's pretty generic. Replying to people has no fucking effect, so that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. But um yeah, that's one of the things is like, if your tweet just like totally bombs immediately, like just delete it and tweet it again later if you really care. I see, I see. And what are some other things that you learned about doing that posting and deleting trial and error? Is there specific themes or like kind of emotions you're trying to list? What, what else did you get from doing that? <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, well, there's also like little other things like for some reason, if you tag a bunch of people in a tweet, like it doesn't do well and stuff. And like when I joined Twitter, I really didn't give a shit about like the algorithm growth engagement. And for the most part, it's not like the top of my priorities, but like I'm starting to realize that like I'm building a company like I have a really crazy like brand presence and like I'm trying to build like the Gaslight brand as well as the Pop Punk on Chain brand, which is so like hand in hand with Gaslight that I unfortunately kind of do have to care about presence on Twitter because at the end of the day, like 
every single customer that Gaslight has ever had has come from someone just DMing me on Twitter. Like they see my tweet, they DM me. They're like, hey, do you want to work together? Like Gaslight doesn't have anyone doing like outreach. We don't have a BD person. So like, I hate it, but like Twitter is really important and is unfortunately like a massive part of my job at Gaslight. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, it is advertising, right? Like at the end of the day, yeah. it's advertising, whether you're paying it with VD people or if you're paying it with like, you know, taking a little extra of your time and crafting, you know, posts that are gonna get engagement, which brings me to something else that's like, do these posts, they come naturally to you or is like something you put some thought into it and kind of have, a, a, as you say, a trial and error? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I would say for the most part, unless it's one of the things where like I edit like a video with a milady dancer or something like pretty much every shit post is just, I think about it like instantly and tweet it and it either does well or it doesn't. Um, my girlfriend can attest to like, we'll literally be like eating dinner and I'll just like pause and drop my fork and I'm like, fuck, this would be an amazing <laughs> tweet. And, like I tweet it out and I'm like, hold on. I have to like refresh it for a minute to see if it stays. And she's like, you gotta be kidding me. But I'm like, this part of the job. <laughs> Yeah, no, that makes sense. I imagine she doesn't love that too much. No, she hates it. <laughs> yeah, dude, I can't relate to that. Um, yeah, that's funny though. And how do you stay afloat of what's going on? Are you constantly on Twitter, just like scrolling through, making, you know, just staying up to date to whatever's going on? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely like, the whole like people in Web3 are terminally online is so fucking true, unfortunately. Like, I pretty much have a tab of Twitter open on my monitor, like at all times, always like just seeing stuff like scroll by. Um, Cause I think it's important too, is no, you know, I'm a founder. I wanna see what other companies, what other founders, if they're raising money, if they're building new stuff, if there's new exploits and libraries and stuff. And just like generally like, I wanna know if some random current event happens cause maybe I could use it in a way like educate in terms of like gas optimization or security, or it's like, can I ship post and build more of a brand for my company on it? So it's like, I'm pretty much unfortunately looking at Twitter all day. And how do you manage to stay focused while doing that? Cause for me, it doesn't work very well. Like I either look at Twitter or do some actual work. I can't really, I just have casually a tab open like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've gotten really good at multitasking between fully like auditing or writing Solidity and doing Twitter. Um, for me, like, it's definitely, it, it's, it's, my brain is wired in like a different way with Twitter where it's like, I really don't use Twitter for pleasure. Like for me, Twitter is work. Like I've built the entire company through Twitter. I'm going to continue to build the company through Twitter. So it's like, if I'm on Twitter, yeah, I'm like shit posting and reading funny shit, but it's also... Twitter is such a core component of like what made Gaslight what it is. Like, I really don't see it as being unproductive. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's, it's definitely true. Uh, it's like a like any other tool that can grow your business. And if what, what advice would you give for a founder trying to leverage Twitter to grow its own project or its own company? <laughs> How do you think they could approach it? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say that like, I had never really used social media, like before I got into Web3, deleted my Facebook when I was in like eighth grade, had an Instagram, basically never posted on it. Um, but then I'll like Twitter and like as soon as I got into Web3, I joined Twitter and I just saw how like profound of an impact it is to be like, wow, like there's literal, I didn't understand the concept of there's like, quote unquote like celebrities like within, you know, crypto Twitter, there's people with a million followers. Um, and that's when I realized every single company is on Twitter, founders are on Twitter and stuff. And it's like, 
I, I noticed it the most when I was building Gaslight and it's like the effect that Twitter can have on your business. And even if you're not tweeting out really profound stuff, it's just like putting your company or your name on the map and building like a presence. So it's like, there are so many companies that like I'll randomly stumble on their website, like somehow, and I'll be like, oh shit, like I know this founder, like he's on Twitter, like I've seen him on Twitter, he likes my tweets or I follow him or something. So I think that, you know, my advice is that social presence, like as much as people might not want to have a social presence, I think Twitter is really important for, you know, the industry that we're in. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And of course, you have your own Twitter strategy, you have your own sense of humor and the way you approach things. Is there any advice that you could give someone trying to figure that part out for them? What kind of suits their style? Yeah, I mean, I would say to be as authentic to yourself as you really are. Like, I'm pretty sarcastic. Like, I'm not that serious of a person in person. Um, so I'm not going to be that person on Twitter. Like, I have no problem making wild shit posts, like calling out the CEO of Certic to a boxing fight. Like, I'm going to be the same person as I am, you know, on the timeline as I am in person because it's easy to just be your authentic self. Yeah, I think your Certic posts are hilarious. Um... <laughs> They always make me chuckle a little bit, and I actually love to see the boxing fight. I feel like that would be like ins that would like insane engagement. That would be like better than Elon versus Zuck, you know? I know it is so funny. It's I don't know. Like I really started the Certic shit like as a meme, but to be completely honest, like they really make a joke of the entire security industry. And like, I mean, if we want to talk about Certic, I could go on about Certic all day. Yeah, I mean, you can go off, dude. I'm also not a big fan for probably the same reasons. Yeah. So it's like the thing that like really bothered me is there's a couple things. So the first thing is like they make the defense and they've like, quote tweeted like the same article to me a couple times where they say that, you know, Certic has done substantially more audits than all these other, you know, firms. So it's expected like the ratio will be even like they've done the most audits. They should have the most exploits. But you know, you can spend 20 minutes going through their completed audits and it's not an exaggeration to say almost half of them are just like one to 10 line ERC-20 contracts. So like that number is heavily bloated and inflated. And I definitely don't agree with the fact that they're taking, you know, probably $10,000 to audit one line of code. That's ridiculous. And they put their shitty stamp of approval on it. Um, so that part I don't like. The other part is it really goes back to the whole Z Casino thing where that company Z Casino tweeted like a really offensive meme and then people made jokes like I can't wait till you get exploited and they're like good luck and then the next day they disclosed a vulnerability um and that was really that Certic basically did their audit and marked this vulnerability as informative which uh it definitely wasn't informative which I'll explain why but if they had marked it properly as probably a higher critical the company definitely would have fixed it and this really boiled down to um in their betting app if the Chainlink VRF didn't receive a response, if gas was too high for, they had it to configured to 200 blocks, if gas was too high for 200 blocks, the person could refund their bet. So essentially, um, Certic said that this could happen if the blockchain was busy, which is bullshit, because all someone would have to do is actually like stage this attack. And we did some calculations and on Polygon, it would cost about $6,000 to essentially inflate gas for 200 blocks. And you could pay $6,000 to always be able to refund your bet if you're not winning. So essentially, you're winning every single bet. You just have to have a little bit of capital to make it so that you can, you know, only win and not lose. 
So to me, that sounds like a hire or a critical because, you know, it's really obtainable to do that as opposed to just the blockchain being busy. But Cerner decides it's just informative. So, I mean, yeah, they did think of it, but it was not presented accurately. Yeah, I think the big scene of Certic is not necessarily doing bad audits, it's setting false expectatives. Because, you know, yeah, not, totally. not everyone is going to be the best at auditing. And if you communicate like, okay, I'm going to try to do my best, but, you know, I'm not the, the best in the business or like, you know, don't expect this to like really foolproof your contract. That's understandable. Right, but that's not how they're marketing. That's not how they're like going around uh, selling their business. They're like, yeah, this is a stamp of approval that your project's safe, and that's like what gets me. You know, it's like very misleading, especially with the quality of service that they're offering right now. So, hopefully, yeah, they... it's tough, and it's the fact like they're the biggest, like they have the biggest presence, the biggest name. I think most of their followers are probably botted, to be completely honest. That's my opinion, but. Um, you know, they're the biggest name. They've done the most amount of audits. People aren't doing research to see that these audits probably take them four minutes to audit an ERC-20 with no logic. Um, so a lot of people are going to them and yeah, I don't know. I mean, like there are so many other firms, solo auditors specifically that work really, really hard, put time in that I think deserve audits over CERDIC to be completely honest. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm always, you know, open for people to change their minds and maybe Certic gets enough um, consequences from all the mishandling of services they've been doing that they change their ways. But right now, I wouldn't re recommend it at all to anyone. I feel like it's, it's just dangerous, you know? Yeah, and I think that Owen Thurm from Guardian Audits has phrased it really well. He's basically said that they essentially like software as a service. They like sassified their audits to a point now where like it's unmaintainable to do it like solo and manual. And that's why everyone just assumes that like these are, you know, AI audits or like GPT audits or something. It's because like they're doing like 10 audits a day. And the fact that they have their whole like certic alerts and view and stuff. And it's just like... They really scaled it too quickly. They grew too quickly. And, um, you know, the quality is suffering, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Let's hope that they, they improve and hopefully that changes sometime in the future. And... Yeah, I mean, I'd love to see that. Like, I don't give them shit for no reason. Like, it's not like, oh, ha ha ha, it's a meme to give certain shit. It's like, I give them shit because they deserve it. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree 100%. And do you have any sort of like, strong opinions about something else in the space that like, you're like, very passionate about as well? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that has I've been actually discussing with people recently is that, you know, these competitive audits, like these platforms like C4A, Sherlock and stuff, they're getting really, really popular. They're doing huge audits. And obviously, like, I want to preface what I'm saying with the fact that security is always the most important thing. Like, being secure is much more important than being gas efficient. I want to get that out of the way. But, like, some of these protocols just don't seem to give a flying fuck about gas. Like, you're seeing, like, a $1.1 million audit for ZK Sync, and I think it's, like, $7,300 on gas or, like... Specifically, I think I saw Lens Protocol did $90,000 and $0 on gas. And I just think that like gas is really important. And I just, I'd like to see more people just take it like a little bit more seriously, to be honest. 
and I think that's because we don't have like much longevity for most projects, at least at the moment. That just let's just get this mm -hmm. thing out, see how it does, rather than just being like, okay, lots of people are going to be using this, and you know they they can spend either like a hundred bucks per transaction or like ten, but we don't care at this point. Yeah, that's sort of the thing, and I mean, I think it's just going to take like me being more vocal on Twitter, Gaslight, you know, obviously blowing up more. And once these competitors, like once we actually have real competitors, like auditing firms also offer like full gas audits and stuff, I think things will change. But it's sort of the thing where it's like a company with really, really bad gas, like it really hurts their reputation. If we think about in the early days of Blur when they launched, like people were doing these comparisons and Blur was like three times the price of OpenSea. And you know, you go to look at an NFT and it's like, I don't want to spend $25 in gas to buy an NFT. Um, and I know like even really before I got into like actually writing Solidity, I would see, I'm like, why is this transaction so expensive? Like on MetaMask or whatever. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's definitely early. Like I really only quote unquote created the gas audit like four or five months ago, but I'm really excited to just you to go like full steam ahead. And, you know, the end goal for everything has always been like, it's expected that you do a gas audit and a security audit before you deploy your contracts. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the only way to go about it. And that can be a bit challenging, right? Because there's a sweet spot between security and gas optimizations. Like you don't want to be too optimized because that's going to introduce a lot of bugs. But then if you're like too careless about it, then you're needless, needlessly wasting a bunch of gas. So how do you find a sweet spot? Yeah. So, I mean, the sweet spot for us in terms of our audits is we really never introduce Yule. Um, and it's because most of the companies that come to us and reach out um, and care about their gas consumption and just don't really know how to handle it, um, they don't have Yule. And it's either they don't want Yule because their auditors don't like to look at Yule, their audit is more expensive if there's Yule, or, you know, they just don't know how to write Yule. Um, so the real big misconception, there's two misconceptions really between, you know, with these gas optimization audits that we do because they're so new. Um, and I feel like a broken record talking about it. The first one is you make the code un like unreadable. And like I said, we're not going in, we're not writing everything in Yule. Um, in many cases, our optimized code, the logic is actually much clearer for you to look at because we're usually removing extraneous lines of code. We're really simplifying logic. So there's as few, you know, op codes that are, you know, going on in the background. Um, so most of the time, our optimized code is clearer to read and easier to understand the logic. Um, and the second thing is that, you know, we're introducing security vulnerabilities. And as I've said a hundred times on Twitter is that I hold security to a much higher degree than I do gas. Like it's more important to be safe than to save money. Um, we're not going in and removing require states. Like let's say you previously had a check to make sure that your array lengths were the same. I'm not going in there and I'm like, ah, oh, ha ha ha, this costs this many gas units. I'm gonna remove it. We're really, really careful with our optimizations and we'll even update like test cases for you in the cases that like things change. But most of the time we're not changing function parameters. Your unit tests aren't changing and we're really not changing any logic. We're just making changes for the sake of like safely decreasing gas. So how does an engagement look like from from the start? Do you guys do first a scoping phase to kind of get a feel of how much you can save on gas? Can you run me through how does that look like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically um, everything starts with someone comes inbound to us. Um, the first things that we like to do is go over first and foremost, 
we usually try and hop on a call, um, but sometimes people don't want to get on calls. But the first thing is always, when is your deadline? Like, what's the time you're trying to target? Because um, we've had people come to us and they're like, we want to deploy the contracts like tonight. Can you do an audit in the next couple hours? Um, so timeline is really important. Um, and then the most important thing is we'll hop on a call. We'll talk about like kind of what their protocol does, what, you know, what do they think the pain points are right now in terms of gas consumption? And then we'll review their code base and basically we'll go through the entire thing, whether it's one contract or 10,000 lines of code. Um, and we're super transparent because we want to make sure that there's actually gas for us to optimize before, you know, we have you pay us because, you know, it's not going to be an enjoyable experience if you, you know, pay us $50,000 and we optimize 1% of your code or whatever, like we increase, we decrease gas consumption by 1%. Um, we usually try and target like around 20 to 25%. If we don't think we can save like on average a general 20 to 25% um, on gas consumption, we usually won't bother with the engagement. Um, but yeah, so then if, you know, people are down with that, we have two different pricing models. The first one is basically flat pricing usually goes anywhere from eight to $10,000, anywhere up to $100,000, depending on code size, all of that stuff, the duration. And then the other uh, pricing model is kind of influenced by Owen Therm with um, his pay for vulnerability. We do a performance-based pricing where we'll give you a base price for the audit. That essentially just covers our time. Um, and then it's tiered pricing. So if we can save, you know, 20% average across all contracts, you pay us this much more, 25%, this much more. Um, we think that that pricing model will probably be the more common one over time. But right now it's usually just like flat prices, flat audits. Yeah, that the paper vulnerability or less, I guess, pay per gas savings yeah. is a, a very enticing models from the value perspective that it provides to the project if done right right of course there can be some kind of misalignment so I, i don't think it's for everyone but if someone is trying to find those trade-offs like from you know being too heavily optimized and not being secure enough how do you think they can go about doing that? Do you think it's worth for companies to have like an internal optimizer? Um, I mean, it really depends. Like, obviously there are salt, like just solidity devs that naturally write really optimized code. Um, but it is definitely interesting to have these trade-offs. Like, I don't think you should, one of the biggest things basically like with sort of writing optimized contracts that I've noticed a lot of people will start to leave out um, and even I'm guilty of it with really the gas like drop contract is if you're, you know, like the way that we wrote gas like drop, essentially, um, we really piggyback on the DAP itself to do a lot of input validation. Um, and that's intentional. Like we are very, you know, um, clear to like, just use the DAP or whatever. Um, because, you know, if your arrays are misordered or, you know, if amounts don't sum to the correct amount, obviously, like we removed those checks intentionally because we wanted to build a hyper optimized contract. That was the main goal. But for people that are doing that, like in their just straight up daily protocols, um, like day to day, like if you have things where it's like, oh, someone can call the contract directly and get different functionality than if they went through our website, I think that's definitely not good. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really just the fact where it's like, get your code as secure as possible and then go to optimize, but then also be secure afterwards. So the way that we like to do it is essentially 
we encourage people to do the gas audit with us before the security audit. And then they'll go through their security audit after our gas audit. And then our pricing basically includes, we'll look at the code after, after you make any security changes to make sure that we're really not gonna make any more changes for you, but we just wanna make sure that like, the way that you approached any like the security vulnerability mitigations didn't like rapidly increase gas somewhere else. Yeah, that all makes sense. Um, and it's it's kind of funny because you kind of came out of nowhere with this sort of obsession for gas. You just started bashing everyone on Twitter like your gas is stupid. What ignited your obsession for gas optimizations? Because for me, it seems so random that I don't really understand it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it's completely random. Um, basically, I started, um, like, my first professional job writing smart contracts. I worked at Magna for almost a year where I led protocol engineering, and we wrote, um, like, vested airdrops, token distribution contracts. And when I joined... I went over all of the previous contracts that were written by like interns and contractors and just, I wanted to refactor them. And at this point I really didn't care about like gas optimization. It wasn't a thing, but then I just started to realize I'm like, okay, I wrote, I rewrote this function and gas used to be this. Now it's this. So it got to like a weird obsession with the gamification of making that gas number go down. Um, and I realized at that time, like there really weren't that many resources about gas optimization online. Like, Rare skills had a little bit, um, there were like random like medium articles or like GitHub gist. There really were no Twitter accounts devoted to this. Like optimizer would talk about gas. Sometimes he has the name optimizer, but like I decided I'm like, there's really no one talking about this specific thing that I would like someone to talk about. So I'm going to do it. Um, and it worked like it went for, I went from like zero to 10,000 followers in a couple months. And I'm just like, People always cared about gas, but no one made a really, really big deal about it. And then started saying gas bad, stuff started taking off. And then it's like, these companies are reaching out to me asking for me to do audits for them. And I'm like, I guess I just continue this obsession with gas because it's so much fun. Like it's, you know, I basically turned two words into literally like my dream job, my dream company, like I'm my own boss. It's amazing. Yeah, that's such a cool story. Although I'm not sure how much it can be attributed to actually gas or just your shit posting skills. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, I, I am decent at gas optimization, I would like to think. Obviously, like, the Twitter, like, being good and, like, snappy and stuff helps. Um, and we've had some crazy performances with customers. Like, with Radiant, we were able to optimize a lot of their functionality, like, up to 88% to the point where they were able to go from an L2 to actually deploying on ETH mainnet, which is amazing. Um, but, yeah, it's just, like, a healthy balance of, like, shit posting and promoting my company, building my personal brand, my company brand, and actually, you know, writing code. Like, most people probably don't realize that I probably work like 14 to 16 hours a day, like almost every day. Like the only exceptions to that are like when I'm hanging out with my girlfriend, but I'm pretty much working all the time. I'm on Twitter all day, but we're pretty much always constantly 100% booked with audits. Like at any given time, we usually have one or two audits going on. Um, and then if there's no audits going on, I'm fucking around, writing my own smart contracts, working on things that are like going to come out in the future for Gaslight. You touched on two things that I really wanted to highlight. One of them is enabling L2 projects to become L1 projects. I think that's super cool. And the more 
projects can do the, the better it is. And I, I have the intuition that there's a lot more projects that could actually be feasible on L1 if they took the patients to have a, a gas audit or like actually look into it. Yeah, totally. That's really so most of our biggest customers have been on L2s. There's the whole meme, gas doesn't matter on an L2, blah, 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 blah. Um, but there's really three things that we optimize for on an L2. The first one is obviously transactions could be more expensive on an L2. If you're batching stuff and say you're minting a thousand NFTs in the transaction, yes, Polygon will be cheaper than ETH mainnet, but those prices can still stack up. So the first thing we do is that we optimize as if it's an L1 for transaction costs, basically compute costs. And call data, obviously, is expensive on an L2. The second one is these L2s, they still have 30 million gas units per block. So the optimization we do there, essentially, we call it, um, it's uh, or transaction computation optimization. So we want to make sure that, like, you're getting as much as you can in a single transaction. And the example that I always give to this when I'm talking to people, say you have an NFT launchpad on Polygon. Do you want to be able to batch mint and airdrop 100 NFTs every time you sign a transaction or 2,000? Like, obviously, you want to do as much as possible. And we really think that comes down to, like, really, it's like direct user experience optimization because people can use your DAP and they can do as much as possible with, you know, single transaction signing. And then the final thing is what you touched on. It's optimization to see if your protocol is feasible on, you know, an L1, on ETH mainnet. And... As much like I love base, I love Polygon, I love all these L2s, but if you can be on ETH mainnet, you definitely want to be on ETH mainnet. And it's because the liquidity is on ETH mainnet. Like you're not going to get new, brand new people to crypto to onboard, like really to like your L2 app because you have to tell them, cool, like you have to buy money on Coinbase, send it to your MetaMask, then you have to bridge it and swap it and shit. And it's like, nobody wants to do that. Like realistically, if everyone could be on ETH mainnet, and let's say you take gas out of the equation, whatever. Like everyone would want to be on ETH mainnet. Yeah, I, I agree. I feel like that's a very important point. And if you can be in all chains, right? Just why not? And if you just kind of like don't think of Ethereum as an L1, you just like, you know, the main chain where most shit happens, you want to be there. That's like the main place where everyone is at. Mm-hmm. Largely because of the things you mentioned, just like ease of use and yeah. everything. And while you're, I mean, I guess you're not currently developing many things at the moment, but when you are, what is your process to develop gas optimized things? Do you usually just the first run and just make it work and then you do a second pass looking for gas optimizations? Do you have gas op optimizations in mind from the first pass? How do you do it and how do you? recommend people to do it yeah i mean so like for me like i'm not gonna write a smart contract and on the first go it's gonna be as gas efficient as possible that's just not gonna happen um so my first pass my first time that i write a smart contract it'll be pretty optimized i'm obviously like taking a lot of things into account like right off the bat like struck packing caching any variables when necessary you know unchecked um addition and subtraction whatever when necessary um, and then, you know, after it works and it's decently optimized off the first, you know, write and it works, I write tests and stuff. Then I go for the optimization of the benchmarks and I look at it way deeper, um, where I'm doing like benchmarking, um, and seeing, okay, is this as cheap as it can be? Obviously, like 
I know the the big like contracts that I write and I release, they're all fully assembly, but it's really rare that I write assembly day to day. I just, you know, there's really no need to write assembly every single day. So most of my contracts are written in solidity unless something really needs to be hyper optimized, hyper optimized. And to be completely honest, assembly really just feels like a flex most of the time. Um, there are cases where it's super useful, but I think that you can still write really efficient solidity. Um, but yeah, so it really just boils down to restated. It's the first write, I try and make it decently optimized and then I write tests and then I benchmark and then I go for these more, you know, deeper optimizations. Yeah, that makes sense. And is there an area where you think people would be surprised where you see a lot of guest benefits? Yeah, um, I think one of the biggest things that's like now finally starting to get more and more traction with not just like cracked devs at companies is everyone like should you should use Solady libraries now that it's been audited. Solady is unbelievable. Like the work that Optimizer has put into that, we really don't deserve him like in this community. Like the work that he did literally for free is wild. And there are so many crazy things where like, an example that I've used recently was basically like um, his libmap library. Essentially, you can save like up to 70% gas like in bulk um, if you're storing like addresses to timestamps, like a mapping of that. If you use like a Solady libmap, you can save like 70% gas. Um, and then the other thing, which I literally sound like a broken record with this, but it, if you have a for loop, make sure that everything that's going on in your for loop needs to happen every loop iteration. Like the amount of time still every single day that I say this, where like people are doing a super expensive function call to like a view function or something, but in their for loop, with static data, which means they could just calculate this one time before the loop and they're doing it every single loop iteration. Like it sounds like common sense, but a lot of people just glance over that when they're writing their contracts. And it's like, I would say the biggest gas optimizations we find in these contracts is just people not realizing that they're computing something over and over and over essentially and many times when they can only do it once. Yeah, I think a lot of that stems from devs that have had a lot of experience in web two and are maybe very senior in Web2, have been writing Web2 their whole lives, and they just kind of bring those same habits to, to Solidity, which is not the same playing field at all. It was one of those habits that's hard to get rid of, but with enough time, eventually. Yeah. No, I fully agree with you that I, I think like after learning and getting really good at Solidity, I still write Python like maybe a couple times a month, just like for personal things, for scripts and stuff. But I think learning Solidity even made my Python like nicer, like more concise and stuff. Because I'm like remembering these things and I'll be like, oh, I better make sure to cache that value and not call it every single time or stuff like that. Where like it literally doesn't fucking matter in Python. But it's just I think just hyper focusing on gas optimization and Solidity has made all of my other really programming habits just so much more optimized, even if they don't need to be. Yeah, I'm... Um starting to believe that Solidity might actually be one of the best first programming languages. It's like one of the one of the few languages that you can see your work in real time day one, right? You can like, mm -hmm. if you, let's say you just follow in a tutorial, day one you can deploy a contract and people can use it. And it's like, mm -hmm. it's real money that people are using and it's pretty easy to, to deploy as well. Like it's not some Haskell or even Rust kind of thing. So I think more people should maybe learn their like learn to program through Solidity. I think that'll that'll benefit everyone in the long run.
I think so. And I think, I mean, the thing that like, for me personally, that I just love about Solidity is the fact that the concept of gas, like if you write really good code, like you can very easily know if your code is really good. If you're doing the exact same thing as someone else, but yours costs half the price. Like, I just, I love that fact. And I love that it's like, you've never really had to care that, that much about like memory management and like a random Python script or something like that. Um, but that's why it's really, really important for Solidity and like, you know, writing smart contracts is like gas exists and you can very easily gauge like how well you're doing based on that. Yeah. And I think it's cool as well because it gives you a very tangible context for managing memory and storage and that kind of things. Whereas I think in the other languages, it is kind of abstract. Oh, this is this thing in memory and there's this thing in storage. And if you're just learning, you don't even like, why do I care? Mm -hmm. Right. But when you're dealing with smart contracts, it's obvious why you should care because otherwise, instead of spending 20 cents, you're going to spend $200 and that's not good. Exactly. Right? Yeah. It's, it's really interesting to think that it's like you could write a loop poorly without even realizing and you could run it and your loop could be a, like a thousand or five thousand dollars for one transaction. I love that because that's why it's so interesting. And I think it would be fun to like really go back and be a beginner again and learn gas optimization concepts like early on, which is why like I like uh, like Patrick Collins in his new 27 hour course, like he really teaches a lot of like gas optimization concepts super early on. Obviously, like I don't want your first contracts to be Yule. I don't want you to be like hyper focused on gas like me from the beginning. But it is interesting to just know how the EVM works like people just jump right into solidity really without learning too much about how the EVM works, how like memory is managed and like state and stuff and like what some of the opcodes do. And it's super important more so than any other language to really know how your runtime works in solidity. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I love Patrick Collins stuff. He's fucking amazing. The quality yeah, and consistency of content that he puts out is unbelievable. It's out of this world. Yeah, I can't even imagine how long like the 27 hour course actually took him to make. And I show that course to everyone now. And it's definitely not because I'm a guest in it. It's totally for other reasons. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's all for free, right? So yeah, totally free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's crazy. The dude is insane. Yeah. <laughs> Which is something I'm really keen on because there's, you know, a few different paid courses at the moment, but I think it's so counterproductive to do a paid course on smart contract security because, you know, if you're trying to learn, obviously you don't have the money yet. Secondly, you're like security is the kind of thing that we need everyone else to be the best at as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. So I know if you really want people to do it, you would just fucking release it, right? I don't think it's the kind of thing that people would be more incentivized to learn if they pay. There's this argument, right? If uh, if you assign a value to it, it becomes more, it's perceived as more valuable and more people are likely to, to try and do it. But for security, I yeah. disagree. Yeah, I mean, I think I've been pretty outspoken on Twitter as well about, you know, paid courses in this space. I personally, like... I'm super against paid courses. Like it really hurts. If you go on to me and just search like solidity course, there'll be like a 45 minute course. And at the end it's it, like the final chapter is called like solidity mastery. And I think like they're just misleading and people trying to make money. Like you're not going to master solidity in 45 minutes. And I just, I don't know. I mean, 
there's really an endless faucet of free information um, and un basically an unlimited amount of information for every topic really in this in this industry. And I think you can learn anything for free. Like I learned all of this random shit for free and I think anybody else can too. Um, I will say some people do make an argument where it's like some of these paid courses have nice rigid structure and you can, you know, follow them easily and you don't really get distracted. But I think I'll always pretty much be very anti-paid courses in, in Web3. Yeah. And maybe the the main benefit of having one of those is the structure. Sometimes you don't you don't know what you need to know. But it's not that hard. Like, just start from the start. Like, you know, okay, how do I deploy something? Then mm -hmm. just Google it and then just keep Googling whatever question comes up. And that's the structure you need. Just trying to do the simplest thing and then trying to do the second mm -hmm. simplest thing. But I'm really keen to see the next courses he releases. I think he's going to end up monopolizing the whole pay course industry, not monopolized, but like ending it because his, you know, his content is going to be better and, you know, there's going to be no need for, for the pay courses to exist. Yeah, I just, I got to know, like, he, it seems like he has more than 24 hours in his days. Like, the amount of stuff that he's just, like, putting out, he's got ciphering, he's got the courses, like, he's, he's, he's doing some crazy stuff. Yeah, it's actually ridiculous i i think he must have some like really have adhd i don't even know how it's called but like one of those uh psychological uh <laughs> things that like make you on all the time i have a few friends like that yeah. and they are always on they can get shit done all day there's no it's almost like they're on coke all day basically it's just like let's go let's go let's go um so yeah yeah he's the best uh, I, he's like such a blessing to the space but you also work pretty hard hours as well. How do you manage to, to do that? Yeah, I mean, so it's crazy because, like, people are really surprised to know that, like, at all the other companies I worked at before I got into Web3, I was, like, just a super generic software engineer. Nothing stood out, like, when I was at Gemini, all these companies, really. And, like, Web3, and as soon as I got into Solidity, it was really the first time that, like, when 5 o'clock hits, like, at these other jobs, like I wouldn't look at Slack. I wouldn't look at any app. Like I didn't care about work after when I went home, but it's like with solidity and gas optimization and just blockchain in general, like I'm so infatuated with this, you know, industry in this space. And like, I've met some of my closest friends now in the past couple of years through this space. And it's like, I just really, really fucking enjoy what I do day to day. And I'm basically always on like, when I like nothing really feels like work, like with Gaslight, like it literally feels like I wake up every morning, I get to just like fuck around and have a company with my best friend and we get paid to have fun. Like, I love it. Yeah, that's cool. Lass. So how does a day in the life of Harrison looks like? Yeah, so I pretty much wake up at like eight or nine, walk my dog, feed him. And then me and my co-founder, uh, we live four blocks away, but we meet basically in the middle at this coffee shop every morning. We chill there talk to the owner, drink coffee, catch up on random shit for the first like hour of the day. Then basically we come to back to my apartment. I have a basically a two floor apartment and the bottom floor is our office. We have a setup here and it's pretty much audits all day, basically work on shit until lunch. Um, and then audits basically all night. Like I'm always working. Like I said, the only time I'm taking a break is like when I'm hanging out with my girlfriend and there are some times where I'm like, would you mind if I like pull out my computer? And she's like, don't do it. 
Yeah, I can relate to that as well. Um, <laughs> how, like for me, at least when it gets late, I find it really hard to work on more challenging problems. So I reserve my late hours for just like more chill kind of work, like emails or replying to people. But it seems like you're doing audits until forever. Do you? Yeah, I honestly, I find myself more productive late at night. Like it's quieter. I mean, I live in New York City, so it's usually always loud, but it's like less loud really like late at night. My dog is kind of like toning down, like getting ready to go to sleep and I can just focus really, really well in bed. Um, basically all day I work on, I have a 49 inch ultra wide monitor. And then basically as soon as it like gets dark out, um, I'll just switch to like my laptop on the couch and I'll just crush through audits or write smart contracts or just read new stuff. I don't know why I've, I think I've always found myself way more productive at night. Like even in college, I would do all of like my CS labs and like problem sets and all of that stuff, just like turbo fucking late at night. Yeah. There's always this kind of like nine people that seem to have I mean, I can relate to that to some extent as well. Sometimes when it's really late at night and everything is just so peaceful, it's just kind of like a magical few hours there that nothing bothers you. You're just like in the zone. And it's so funny because you don't really realize how much of a difference that makes throughout the day. Just like street noises, you know, just... Mm -hmm. Things that you don't even know that are going on, but when they quiet down and out and you feel like how peaceful it is, it just makes everything so much effortless when you're trying to really focus on one thing. Yeah. And I, it's really like at night I can be a lot more uninterrupted, like basically uninterrupted. Like once my dog like basically falls asleep, I don't have to walk until the morning. So like I have just this uninterrupted like couple hours like before I go to bed after him where it's like. I can focus, there's no distractions, there's no interrupting interruptions, and I can do what some people could probably, would take them eight hours, I can do it in like three hours if it's nighttime. Yeah, I know, there's something that definitely to deep work. You can accomplish so much when you're totally focused and your mind is just obsessed with this one thing. It's almost like you're, like you're in the code, like you're just yeah. in it. <laughs> totally. So I know you had some interns or one intern a while ago. How did that go? And how did you train him up or her? Yeah. So that process was super fun. So I basically tweeted out one day. I was like, what if we hired an intern with absolutely zero experience? Would anybody be interested in that? And it fucking blew up like we had an application period open for a couple of days and we got like almost 400 people apply for it. We did this whole process of like narrowing it down. And then we chose Eliza and she was our intern for the summer. Um, she actually ended last week and it was a lot of fun because she really didn't have any experience with solidity. Um, it was definitely a learning experience for me too. To, I'm not just teaching someone solidity, like I'm teaching them gas optimization from zero. So it's like, I might be teaching her things to look at in smart contracts that she doesn't even fucking understand because she has no solidity yet. So it's like a lot on her to be learning on the side. And I think it was definitely fun. Um, it wasn't a process where like, I couldn't sit in like a Slack huddle with her for eight hours a day because it'd be overwhelming. So we do an hour or two in the morning and then 
a lot of it was really like we were giving her we were paying her to keep her on a track to study on her own like we were i was going over previous gas audits i was doing new gas audits with her but we were keeping her motivated and paying her to like study solidity learn how to write smart contracts and stuff and it was super fun um and i think that we're definitely going to do it now we want to do it four times a year we want to have a spring summer fall and winter intern or gaslight like at all times that's super cool and did she have any coding experience beforehand? What kind of level was so she? So she's, she's in college. I think she's a senior in college now studying computer science, but no experience really with Solidity. Um, I think for future interns, we'll probably take someone in the future that actually like maybe understands Solidity just because I just wanted to see, could I do it? Could I take someone from no experience to learn how to gas audit? Um, but it's definitely super fun, and it's something that I think we're always going to have. I think Gaslight will always have interns now. Yeah, and I feel like it helps you too, in a way, right? Because you're refining your knowledge, because when you need to transfer knowledge, you really need to refine your understanding of how those things work in your head so you can mm-hmm. pass it on like in the most digestible manner. So I feel like you definitely got out of it a lot as well, I imagine. Totally, yeah. I think that, I mean, I was learning myself just by teaching her so i think that was great yeah i think if any other founders have some spare time that could be really cool for the space in general totally and what kind of advice would you give someone that doesn't have harrison to uh, coach him to become a gas wizard how do you think they could approach to build a sort of skill set yeah, I mean, so I will say I've been like slowly working on it for the for the like the past like couple months, um, basically like a gas optimization course, like zero to one, like how to do a gas audit. Uh, I think in the interim, um, Rare Skills post, posted like the gas optimization book or whatever, with a lot of like really interesting stuff. Um, but I really want to attack it at a more general level, like where it's basically going over like the exact things that I see in gas audits, like the things that you'll see if you do a gas audit yourself, like things to look out for, because, you know, there are these people, you know, saying, oh, I can write your entire smart contract and you will boom, it's optimized. People don't fucking want that. Like you need to know to how to look at a protocol and see like the way that they've implemented it. Like how can you optimize it in a way where they're not going to look at it after and be like, what the fuck is this? So that's really what like the gaslight course is going to be. It's really going to be how the fuck do you do a gas audit like from zero to one the exact things that you need to know for it because at the end of the day we basically created the gas audit we've done more than anyone we've spoken to hundreds of protocols talking about their interests and their needs for it so i mean i think our course obviously will hurt our business because more people will be doing audits themselves but at the end of the day the goal has always been like I don't give a shit if there's a hundred companies doing gas audits and Gaslight has the least business out of all of them. Like, I just care that everyone has efficient code. That's such like a paradoxical thing and such like a nice thing of you as well, because I believe the more type of those things, like the more type of free value put out in the world, like it definitely comes back to you in some way or another. So I don't think that's going to hurt your business at all. I feel like, somehow it's going to help your business in the long run for sure. And it's something very... Yeah, I mean, probably. Yeah, and the this aspect that you mentioned that is not simply as just like rewriting their code and making like super gas optimized. It's understanding like you need to optimize their code and not make like a just a rewrite basically. 
and let's take some kind of skill and and understanding our context and just even personal relationships because if you understand how their head works you kind of understand what kind of optimizations they're looking like yeah totally that's i think a really like important thing that you mentioned is at the end of the day like you want to optimize their code like you don't want to write your interpretation of their code in an op in a more optimized manner like when we, when we finish these gas audits like your code pretty much looks exactly the same like if you write it it's just like we picked up on things that you didn't pick up on which i think is really important it's like you can't just turn everything into yule because people don't want that yeah yeah for sure and what are some of the things that excite you in crypto at the moment yeah i think that the thing that like above all that has me really excited right now is like really web3 gaming and it's not even because i want to play these web3 games like i'm interested in like the advancements that like web3 gaming brings and like i'm super excited to see like games that are fully on chain like i had a pretty viral tweet a couple days ago where it was like everyone repeat after me token gating the login of your game and everything else is like off chain is not web3 gaming i'm really excited to see just like really creative ways that people bring as much of their game and like their matchmaking and all of that stuff on chain yeah that's cool i think gaming is definitely going to be one of the biggest advances for crypto absolutely and i just watched your even as podcast and you kind of mentioned without mentioning the what the future holds for gaslight so i was wondering if you could maybe share a little bit more about what you have coming yeah. up yeah so i mean definitely um we have gaslight drop that's to say the least that's not going to be the only public good that gaslight builds and we have so much stuff that's going to be announced with like a month or two but gaslight you know it started as gas audits but that's only the beginning like we'll always be doing gas audits but we have so much more stuff to like we're basically building a full company around gas and gas only nice nice cool I'm excited to see what comes out um i have one stupid little question that i ask sometimes to some of the guests is that if you found a genie that could answer any question but just one question, what would you ask him? It can be like literally anything. Like you can ask him what's the cure of cancer or when is Eve going to hit 10K, whatever we want. I would be more curious to ask, honestly, like what is the lowest price that ETH will be in the next five years? I'd be really curious to see. Is there ever a point where ETH somehow literally goes to zero? Because I think that would be interesting. Do you think you would come back up? I mean, I hope so. Like I have a very big percentage of my net worth, like pretty much based on ETH and Vitalik himself. Um, but I would be super interested to see, yeah, like I would ask, like, that's like my meme question. Like what is the lowest price we'll see ETH at in the near future? Interesting, interesting. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think if it's gonna go to anywhere near zero, I feel like we've reached like a, point of no return at this size we hope we can only hope yeah i mean like who the fuck knows right there's always things shit can happen shit happens shit happens especially yeah. in crypto but i'm very optimistic i feel like we are at the stage that things are starting to kind of like slowly turn into the 
crypto's way where people are realizing that the current traditional system is fucked up. We've seen like all these bank failures. And if shit like this keeps happening, which, you know, I think it's inevitable to happen. It's just like part of the system. Slowly as the new generation comes and takes power, the more efficient crypto ways are going to take over if, you know, maybe sooner rather than later. Yeah, that was, that was fucking beautiful. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure having you here. That was a very fun chat. I'm really keen to see what comes out of a gaslight in the short and long term. Yeah, thank you so much. This was a blast. Um, it's really rare that I do podcasts. I know I've done two recently, but like I only really, you know, go on podcasts if I like the person that's doing it or interested in topics. But yeah, this was so much fun. And thank you for having me.